Okay. Good morning, everybody. So this is Matthew 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Tibor. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. We started this series last week. It is a whopping two-week teaching series called Kingdom and Empire, where we have asked the question, what does it look like to share the, the depth of love that God has for the world with the world at this specific cultural moment? We live in what many sociolo- sociologists would call, what's up, Chanel? I love you. I love you too. We live in what many sociologists would call a pluralistic moment, meaning you believe whatever you want to believe radically behind closed doors in the privacy of your own home, but as you walk into the public square, you need to make sure you settle down a bit. Make sure you are not communicating that others need to believe what you believe or that your value or worldview has some type of worth or value that others may not And so what does it look like to communicate the depth and power of God's love in that moment in the empire state? And so I want to pray for us. Last week we talked about why the majority of the church in the Western world does not do this well. Today we will talk about how. So pray with me. Lord, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for this space and this place today. You make a promise that says where two or more people gather in your name, your presence is is there. And so today we wake up to that presence. We want to experience your love in a new way. And one of the songs that they sang today talked about the veil being torn. If there is any veil or barrier in between our minds, our hearts, and your presence, we need you to rip that down. We love you, Lord. And we expect much from you as we sit here and listen to your word as it communicates the love of your son, Christ. It's in your name we pray these things and all as people said, amen. It was about 18 years ago now today that I sat next to a young woman that I was dating at that point in time in church service. We had been dating for a few years and she all of a sudden said that she wanted church to be an important part of her life and so that meant all of a sudden I found myself in a church. 
And I sat in this specific service on that day being introduced to a new face. In the midst of hundreds, if not a thousand people, a young woman, probably about 16 years of age at that point in time, got up onto the stage and in front of the entire crowd began to sing a ballad about the love of God that melted people's hearts. I did not know who this woman was, but I said to myself, self, she's kind of cute. In the most innocent and subtle way, I looked at this woman who was singing with authority and I just thought, this this woman's kind of cute. Well, over the next year, I ended up breaking up with the woman that I was sitting next to that day in that church service. And throughout the next year, as I continued to go to that church, the harmless, that woman is cute, turned into something a bit more serious. I started to watch her week after week get up, and I thought, who is this woman that is giving significant time and resources to proclaiming the goodness of God's love in this place at such a young age. It was that year that I started my senior year at a local university. And a few weeks before classes began, I pulled up to the university to get some books. I got out of my car and I saw that young woman that I recognized from church walking about 30 yards ahead of me. Now, I clearly wanted to meet this woman at that point in time, but if you know who this woman is, you know that her legs are a lot longer than mine, and so it was very hard to try and catch up with her, and I'm way too proud to launch into a full sprint, and it would just be creepy altogether. So I missed her that day. I watched her in the distance as she veered right into a classroom full of people, and I thought, out, I missed my chance today. But I knew that in the future, over the next few weeks, that that young woman would be at that university with, him, with me, and I would have an opportunity. I would have an opportunity if I put myself in the right position and had the right posture. And so for the next few weeks, I would walk to the same building that I saw her in. I would walk the same path. I know this is sounding creepy. I walked the same path that I walked that day, and I would just rest kind of in that place, waiting for that young woman. I knew if I put myself in the right place at the right time with the right mindset, I would likely have the chance to have some type of exchange with this person and hopefully, just hopefully, see something brilliant come out of it. It was about posture. It was about position. And this is often the case when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel and sharing the depth and power of God's love with colleagues and family in the city that we love. We tend to think that this idea of talking about our faith, evangelism, is all about pronouncement. And so a lot of us sit in here and we go, you know what, Dan, I get it. I understand. Universally, people talk about the things that they love most. And we definitely talk about the person that loves us most. It's just natural to do. In addition, we all know, at least those of us that have been a part of the, the Christian worldview, we understand that this is, a, is not an intuitive thing that people come to. This is a historical act. This is about the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not intuitive. It's a historical thing that must be heralded. And so we cannot assume or expect that the majority of human beings are going to sit under a tree and intuitively come to the conclusion that God loves them so much that he would take on skin and come into the world to show us the full extent of that love. I know a lot of you are like, yes, we, we, we understand that we should be talking about this, that it should be a natural outpour of our love for God and God's love for us. But I, I don't know if I can promote 
the kingdom of heaven, Dan. Because I'm just not a good communicator. I know if I start to do this with my colleagues or my friends, I'm going to stumble over my words. I'm going to say the wrong things. I haven't read the books. I haven't taken a course. I'm not sure I I can promote. But what I want to suggest today is this is not just about promotion. Some of you are going, Dan, I want to do this. I know I should, but I'm not a good apologist. I don't have good answers to people's deep questions. And so I'm going to start talking to my colleagues about the love and grace of God, but the moment they ask me a really good question like, well, then why is there so much suffering in the world? I'm not going to know what to say and I'm going to look like a fool. I can't promote because I'm not a good apologist. But again, I want to suggest today that this is much more than something about promotion. Some of you are going, I have too many doubts. I just have too many doubts. I'm still learning about this stuff myself. Maybe in a few years I can start talking about this, but I I can't promote about God's love and God's kingdom to the rest of the world because I just have too many doubts or I'm afraid. I'm afraid of pushing people away. I love my colleagues. I love my family. I don't want to say the wrong thing and alienate the relationship. I can't promote because I love these people. I want them close to me. But today what I want to suggest is that Proclaiming the gospel and what theologians would call evangelism is a lot less about promotion and much more about posture, about the position that we put ourselves in. And so three questions today, three important questions that help cultivate a much needed posture for proclaiming the good news of God's love to the people of the empire state. First question is a question of dependence. The question is this, what is in my possession? Jesus begins this commissioning speech and he says, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, now freely give. And then he shifts to praxis, to practice. This is how you do it. He says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. How odd that Christ gathers these inadequate, unschooled, some of them very unethical new students of the way of Jesus, these disciples. He gets ready to send them out on a mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. And instead of starting with how to answer people's tough questions... Instead of starting with a formulaic answer that they can give to people, instead of equipping his disciples with some good flyers or tracts that they can hand out to the masses that talk about the new Messiah, instead he starts with what not to bring. No gold, no silver, no copper, no belt, no bag, no extra shirts. Why? Well, because those who are powerless, those who remain dependent upon God's authority and those who remain dependent upon God's provision have a posture that is almost impossible to ignore. See, there's a lot of things that can be ignored. Intellect can be ignored. Back at this point in time and today, the most intelligent of teaching can be ignored. Rabbis were attractive and compelling at this point in time because of their intellect, their great and wise questions. 
great authoritative teaching came both before Jesus and after Jesus. Jesus could have launched these disciples out into the world to teach the most intelligent philosophy and theology. But the reality is, intelligence can be ignored. Zeal and passion can be ignored. There were many messianic claims both prior to Jesus' life and after Jesus' life. There were people that arose who made the same claims and actually gathered the same type of crowds that Jesus did. The fact that these new students started to get passionate and zealous about proclaiming the kingdom was really good, but I promise you that could have been ignored. Platforms and powerful influence can be ignored. There were political figures throughout time. There were emperors and kings who leveraged their power and their policy to force state religions that increased the amount of churchgoers and people that adhered to the Christian worldview without ever changing the motivations of those people or the guts of the culture as a whole. And so though critical mass in the growth of the church is good, you know what else can be ignored? That. The one thing that is so hard to overlook is when an individual or a community actually chooses to live in a way where if God does not provide, if God does not step in, if God does not go before them, they're done. It's hard to ignore people who have chosen dependency. About a year ago, I started praying. I was praying very specifically. I said, Father, we need... Leaders, pastors that are bilingual. We need Spanish-speaking pastors now. I know the demographics of the city. I know the demographics of the United States. If we don't get these people, we are going to be irrelevant. I started to pray and pray, and all of a sudden, one of my f- friends from the West Coast, his name is Abraham, calls me up. He says, Dan, this is one of our best leaders at our church out here. Spanish-speaking man and Spanish-speaking women, they just came to me. They said they're probably leaving the church. For the past seven years, they have had this burden, this passion for New York City. They think now is the time that they're going to move there. They're like, you, you want to talk to them? I was like, yeah, yeah, dummy, I want to talk to them. I've been, told you I've been praying for this. So Abraham connects me with Simone and Ruth over here, who are some of our pastors over at the New Queens Church. And we got to know them over time. And I remember we were discerning whether or not they were a good fit for some of our communities here in New York when they kind of looked at me and did one of these. Hey, we would love to be with you, but even if we're not, we're coming. And I remember the day that they looked at Amanda and was like, listen, we're going to move probably August. And Amanda kind of went, well, what about your stuff? Like, we're not, you don't have a place yet. Where's your stuff going to go? And they looked at us and were like, yeah, we don't have much stuff. We came from Venezuela a few years ago and didn't have much stuff. We've been receiving stuff from people, furniture and stuff that we live with in L.A., but we'll just give that back and come a few suitcases. I remember Amanda's face was like... <laughs> and part of that chuckle was because she knew this is, the, this is the type of dependency that is magnetic. It is easy to tell your neighbors about a God who saves all the while modeling, modeling them to them clearly that you don't need saving. It's easy to tell your colleagues about a God who provides all while allowing your colleagues to see see clearly that you don't actually need provision. It's easy to tell your family about a God who intercedes on your behalf when clearly you don't need intercession. 
If you're like me, we want our loved ones and our colleagues and our neighbors to know about the saving power and presence of God. But can I suggest to you that you may want to stop worrying about how you tell them and the right language to use and when the timing is right and instead ask the question, what's in my possession? What may I need to let go of to be more fully dependent upon God because a dependent posture cannot be ignored in an independent culture? The driving narrative of the United States of America is independency. We have a declaration that talks about it. The driving narrative of the gospel is dependency. They're two very different things. You want to understand what is magnetic and compelling story in an an independent culture. It is full dependency on God. I understand many of us are like, Dan, I can't promote. I don't know all the answers yet. I can't promote. I don't have the experience. I can't promote. I've only been a Christian for a few months. Listen, this has way less to do with promotion and way more to do with your posture. Jesus continues. He says, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If the first question is all about dependence, what's in my possession, the second question is all about presence. Who is in my path? Who is in my path? Jesus says, when you enter a town, find a worthy person. This is the phrase that theologians will go to to coin the phrase, a person of peace. Jesus is saying, go, I want you to find a person of peace, someone who will connect themselves with you through the act of hospitality, and by doing so, they will open up their entire network of people to you. The scripture calls it oikos, or their extended family. We would say they're a key holder, someone who will unlock a new sphere of friends that you can start to love and be loved by. We moved to the island six years ago and we quickly found a a people of peace all around usually there are people that like you they are people that listen to you and they are people that are willing to learn from you and often they are people that hold different worldviews than you we came to the island and most of the people of peace we found were Jewish and atheists and agnostics A person of peace for me right now is actually one of the leaders of the Islamic society here on the island. I love him dearly. Makes me laugh and he brings me joy. A year ago when we started to explore whether or not we should start a church in Sunnyside, it was a pastor who had just closed his church that was a significant person of peace and opened up his entire network to us. Right now in Sunnyside, it's, a, it's an old Lebanese man who runs a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant on Queens Boulevard and a Thai waiter in one of my favorite Thai restaurants on Queens Boulevard. It's a mother named Kate who has opened up her entire mother's and parenting network to me and a book editor named Stephanie who has opened up her whole community in Woodside to us. Jesus says, when you find those people, settle down and connect your lives to them. Let your peace rest on them. Now, this is an important phrase. Because what this means is we're not just treating them as some type of weird pet project. It means that we're actually learning what it looks like after they've become people of peace to us to become people of peace to them. When we moved to the island, there was a a Lebanese man and his wife, a a Jewish New Yorker, who is a strong, strong atheist, who became strong people of peace for my family. 
Right away, they invited us to all of their, their family and friend get-togethers, their private holiday parties that they had been having with the same circle of people for decades. And our family was invited into this, and we were like, this is amazing. They're treating us like we've been here for 20 years. But over time, we started to sense there's a way for us to become people of peace to them as well. I remember the day when they called me up and said, hey, Dan, we're having 10 of our best friends over to our house. I'm surprising my wife. We're going to renew our vows. Will you come into our home and renew our vows for us? Neither of them are Jesus followers, but I'm like, heck yes. I will renew your vows. This is a way that I can become a person of peace for you. Now, now here is the issue with this. We don't like to settle down in this, this moment in time. We're a scattered people. We're attention deficit people. We're hurried. We're consumeristic. And so when something or someone doesn't work out for our agenda, we move to the next. When we fear we're missing out on something better or someone better, we move on to what's next. Which is why in today's cultural moment, having a posture of presence means the world to people. Being a person of presence is one of the biggest gifts you can give people in this point of time. That's why Jalin, I think I saw Jalin walking, that's why Jalin has been so fruitful in her time here in New York City over the years. Because even though as a young single she could be bouncing around to the next thing and the next neighborhood, she has continued to stay rooted at NYU with graduate and postdoc students. She said, these are my people, this is my place and people of peace. I'm digging roots down deep here. In a transient, consumeristic, and individualistic time, becoming a person of presence is one of the most attractive things in the world. You can have all of the right language. You can read all of the right books. You can want to win people so badly to the faith. But listen, if you are not a person of presence, you likely won't have any credibility to begin with. Evangelism is less about promotion and more about posture. Dependence. What's in my possession? Presence. Who is in my path? And then Jesus ends. He says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. I love, I love how Christ ends this part of his commissioning. Because this should be like his big pump you up before the game speech. And so he starts, he's looking at a bunch of inadequate, unschooled, ordinary people, and he has said, by the way, you're going to go out, you're going to bring the kingdom of heaven to the world, you're going to do some impossible things because I'm bestowing my authority on you. This ain't about your morality, I'm bestowing my authority upon you, now go. And he gives the praxis, the practice, he says, don't bring anything, dependence is key. He says, be with people. Do not buy the lie that more activity and busyness is more fruitful. Stay present with people. And the finale, by the way, when you're rejected, just move on. If you're rejected, it's like, wait, wait, time out. You told me that your authority to do the impossible is now on me, and I'm really confident all of a sudden, but now with the same breath you're saying it, and when you're rejected, it's going to happen. I've started following Jesus 17 years ago. I've seen thousands of people come to faith, be baptized, and live radically different lives. I've seen hundreds of people look at me and go, yeah, sorry, bud. That's why in John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind, I hate me first. His whole ministry was, I am willing to risk rejection out of a deep love for God and humanity. 
there was a man who walked in here over the last few seasons. He came and he sat right in the back as I was speaking. And he just, the whole sermon, he just was weeping. So after the sermon, I, I connect with him. And over the next few months, we had great conversations. He would come to my house and we would pray together. He told me how he walked in that first day too. He said him and his girlfriend he had been living with for years had just broken up. and He didn't know what to do and so he was walking the street. He saw the sign for Hope Church and he decided to come in for the first time since he lived in the United States. Stepped into a church, sat there, wept. For the next four months he would come in every Sunday and he would just weep. He was a bloody mess as he heard about the love of God and the fact that you don't have to be defined by shame. And then one day, one of our leaders says, hey, Dan, you might want to check out your Instagram account, uh, <clears throat> specifically, specifically this guy. It's like, okay, public account. And so I look, and, 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 and there's some overly sexual pictures of this man. And I'm thinking, this is quite interesting. And as you start to read, you realize that he has gone through a, a type of overly sexualized therapy. Um, <clears throat> with a dominatrix. If you don't know what that is, don't look it up. But I called him the next day and I said, hey, let's talk, man. I'd love to talk with you. He's like, all right. And so we sit down and I said, listen, what's going on? He's he's like, I thought you would ask me about this. I'm like, yeah, man, you're posting this publicly. What's what's going on? He said, listen, there's, there's just a few things that have been gnawing at my soul. He said, one, I know I need to get through pain. It's like, Dan, I I need to get through pain. I don't know how to get through this pain of this breakup, but I need to figure out how to get through pain. And I figured hiring this person from the West Coast to come in and bring me through this therapy that involves pain, I figured that that would help. I said, okay. He said, then vulnerability. I've always struggled with vulnerability. And so I thought that if I made myself vulnerable to this type of therapy and this type of person, that I would be okay. He said, then I've never felt attractive. This is, all, this is all public. Never felt attractive. I wanted to feel attractive. I felt strongly the Spirit go, all of these desires are really good desires. You need to take this moment and affirm these right now. And so I just launched into it. I said, I want you to understand, those are good. Vulnerability is good. To be seen by someone fully and accepted is good. That's a deep human desire to be wanted and loved in the most intimate of ways is good. You were made for that. To get through pain and to grow from it. That's the only way we're restored and redeemed, man. That's good. And then I was like, but can I suggest a different approach? I said, because let's be honest, you might be being vulnerable with this person, but you're hiring this person. They're not being vulnerable with you. This is their job. What if I told you that there's another person, another being who views you as beautiful, who sees every part of you and says, yes, I am head over heels in love with you, have been since the foundations of the world. And what if I told you that that person came into the world and showed you more vulnerability by exposing himself to violence than any type of vulnerability you could ever give back? And what if instead of you having to take on pain to get through your problems, there's actually another who takes on pain for you? He's like, you're talking about Jesus, aren't you? I was like, you knew I would. I got to be honest with you guys. I walked out of that restaurant going, that was good. I just came to Jesus again. That was real good. You know, I never heard from him again. 
never came back again. This man was in my home, praying with me, introducing my children to him, caring for him. And yeah, maybe I planted some type of seed that somebody else will come and water as they talk about God's love to him and he might come into faith, but that's rejection at its finest, folks. Which brings up the last question. Where do I find my self-worth? Inevitably, the question you must ask yourself is, where do I find my self-worth? Is it in my effectiveness? Is it in the perception that others may have of me? Is it in whether or not I seem foolish to others? Or am I able to stand confidently, screw up, fail, say the wrong things, be rejected, not have all the answers, and still know that I am 100% loved and found valuable, not because of what I've done or what I can do, but because of what God has done on my behalf through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? Can I stand confidently? Because I can tell you, If you are a person who is dependent in an independent culture, if you are a person of presence in an overly busy, consumeristic, individualistic moment, and if you are a person that can stand confidently in the midst of rejection and faults and failures that you have, you will be magnetic to those around you. And you will be able to have whatever conversations you want with people. Understanding the scripture is important. Processing through people's tough questions, it's important. Words, they're important. But this has way more to do with your posture. Now remember that day in the Oakland Center. I walked into that main building waiting for her once again. And finally I saw her out of the peripheral. I was like, there she is. And I walked up to Amanda and I was like, hey, it was love at first sight. She saw me and she loved me. <laughs> no. In fact, I was foolish. I looked at her. I was like, you got a great voice. And then I just walked away. I remember walking away like, what did I just do? But it's been an amazing story with my wife since that moment in time. I promise you, you will be a part of people's stories in ways you never thought possible. You have the opportunity to change the trajectory of people's lives, to restore families. You have the possibility of fighting for people's sobriety, changing people's full narrative of why they live. But so much of it rests on your posture. And so as we take communion today together, we take it with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who was fully dependent on his Father, had no home to lay his head. As we take communion today, we fix our eyes on the one who is fully present with us. I think the song that we sang said, wouldn't be content with heaven without us, and so brought heaven down, fully present with us. And the one who is okay risking rejection to the point of death because he knew that death would not be strong enough to hold his love back.